Hello, welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast. I'm Cyrus Monk, former under-23 Australian road champion and current professional with Irish Continental Team Evo Pro Racing. Joining me are my co-hosts, Dr. Jason Boynton, PhD, and Damien Roos, the man behind Semi-Pro Cycling. This week, we'll be discussing what happens when an athlete can't complete a session, Damien's been thinking about how to plan training around fueling requirements and Jason is going to take us on a deep dive into training to increase FTP. So how are we going guys? I'm good. I'm good. Um, I don't know if I'm going to take us on on that complete of a topic around uh, FTP. It's um, specifically going to be looking at more like the claims around specific workouts that increase FTP. So, yeah. um, uh, so, yeah. yeah, that's good. We'll, uh, we'll save that one for, for later on. Cause I'm, I'm sure it'll produce some pretty in-depth discussion. So I might start us off today and go into my topic, which is there's, there's a few, few different rabbit holes we could end up going down, but basically what I've been thinking about is what happens when an athlete can't hit the numbers that they are planning on hitting in a session and what we can do as coaches in that and what the responsibility of the athlete is so if i provide an example to get the the ball rolling you've you've given a a set of intervals at a prescribed zone and they've rolled out and they've completed the first of five sets okay and then second one they've barely got through and then the third one about halfway through they've failed and this is a set that they were was planned that they were able to complete and they haven't been able to complete it so be interested firstly just to hear your expectations of the athlete in this scenario what you would expect them to do and what you think would be best for them to do in this situation oh let you go first damien yeah yeah yeah. Uh, so we're talking about someone that, just remind me again, someone that didn't necess- like hit numbers initially and then sort of started fading over a few efforts. Yeah. So they've had, say, a set of, of five of whatever the prescribed interval is. So let's just, for argument's sake, say a, a five by five at their FTP. And your favorite, yeah, argue, your do, favorite workout, Cyrus. Well, it's it's a very easy one to use in this situation for the for the discussion. But uh, yeah, if if they're unable to complete that, or it's the rate of perceived exertion is way higher than they would usually get for that session, what would what would you expect the athlete to do? Uh, give me a phone call after effort two. Right. I'm, I'm yeah. half serious. I'm half serious. I, I, you know, I do know of athletes and coaches, like coaches that will get a call halfway through a session um, asking for advice. But in that type of scenario, something's got to be up. Something's got to be up with the, uh, with the rider. If it was prescribed at a level that you know they would normally hit, for me, it would initially have to fall back on the athlete to figure out what's going on. And you'd be covering off some basics to figure out uh, if there's things outside of cycling that um, have been a little bit off lately. So just covering basics like sleep, nutrition, hydration, um, anything like that to figure if, if that's the cause of what happened. But uh, 
that's the initial thoughts I'd have. I have about falling back on what the athlete's responsibility here is. Yeah, and then in in that scenario, what's generally so? I, I would say similar. We'd find um, with most athletes, something's going on if they can't complete a, a set that they're expected to complete, and that's going to come down to other variables outside of the training usually because if the the plan is is a a good training plan they they should be able to complete each of the sessions in it but the what i would be looking at is would you then if you get that call tell them to go straight home or are you modifying the intensity or duration of the efforts instead or what would be your go-to plan of attack from there well you got an answer jason (laughs) Um, I think I have a little bit different approach than you guys, so I might just sit back and listen to you guys mull it over until I jump in. Is that that's probably I don't know how fair that is, but um, or do you okay. just want me to kind of back? Okay, okay. <laughs> um, it really depends on what you're trying to get out of the session. In some ways, if you're just trying to have some mental toughness to get through something um, to build a bit of confidence or whatever it is, um, you may just call it. Um, you may just tell them just to ride home. There's not, it's not worth pushing through. But on the flip side of that, maybe, maybe it would be worth lowering it just so they could get through it so they feel like they've accomplished something and you finish the ride feeling like you've got something done. I'd say that's, that's more from like the, the perspective of the athlete and how they would feel after the session, I guess. And it's probably this is this thing between coach and athlete, um, knowing them very well and trying to figure out exactly how they react to situations like this. Yeah, I I think um, my thinking would be very similar. I can think of athletes I've worked with in the past or ridden with in the past that they need to be able to finish each session or they're <laughs> contemplating quitting the sport after it if they, <laughs> if they um, don't tick all the boxes, whereas others are happy to, to say, all right, that was just an off day, I'll... Um, I'll yeah, recover for later in the week. The the other thing that would be a massive factor for me is the timing of the session during the micro cycle. So whether it's that there's a Rico day the next day already scheduled, and then almost always I'd be saying, look, you can afford to to be in a lot of pain, try and hold as high a percentage of the prescribed intensity as possible. And we'll um, see how you feel at the end of your rest day the following day. Whereas if the obviously the complete other end of that is coming towards a race, I would always be saying go straight home and don't do any more damage if that's the way you're feeling. And also if it's something where I really want them to be able to do consecutive hard days, I don't want them to get to the point where they're unable to complete sessions early on in that block. Hmm. Jason, have you got nothing? Okay, okay. I have something now. Okay, tank. yes, yes. Um, I'm writing down notes on the back of a gum package because I because I left my notebook on my on my couch. I didn't want to get up for it. Um, so, anyways, uh, so first of all, like I think I'm a little bit different in how I prescribe my efforts in terms of uh, hit. So we're talking about high intensity interval training here because that's probably the thing that athletes are going to fail on the most it's like if you're going to give them a a form sprint interval session or something like form drills or something like that the chance of them failing on that are low unless they're crashing um so yeah since 
the hit is the most likely thing to to fail on. I guess I'll tackle that. Um, I think I think it comes down to how you're going to prescribe your efforts. So you know if you're going to prescribe uh, a via to max style or zone effort, then you have set up the zones and you want the effort the athlete to be within that zones. I guess some coaches would prescribe um, something a little bit more in depth, I guess, or something, something a little bit more specific that runs into an epistemological problem for me. So I don't do that. Uh, how I prescribe my intervals, like a five by five session, what I would, I would have them do it as a maximal effort. And, and so th- what I'm expecting from them is based on, you know, where their CT, where their chronic training load is tracking. And so, yeah, if they come out and they're not hitting the numbers that they want to hit, and I do I actually do a lot of my interval training with my athletes here in Perth, so we have regular sessions on Wednesday, so I'm right there with them. And if it's a one-off, I'm you know because I'm there, I'm not too worried about it. And if they tell me that their numbers are down, which could be you know, even if we model them into the session and their TSB looks good and everything like that, it could be just because it's a cold morning or something like that and their numbers are off. That happens sometimes. Um, so if it's in that, if it's that case, especially if I'm right there, I usually just tell them to continue with the effort and put in the effort and just put in maximize effort, even if the watts are down. So, um, and the reason that is, is based on the, the sum of what I'm extrapolating off of the research from my PhD, whereby, um, you know, the hot group had a higher cardiovascular strain potentially, but the power numbers were down. And so I say, you know, try to match your heart rate as much as you can, which heart rate isn't always the best uh, indicator of cardiovascular strain in all situations. But... I just kind of say, just continue with the effort unless obviously there's some kind of like, um, injury or something, or they're like just having their soul crushed by it. But if it's just a, a day where they're a little bit off, um, then I'm just going to tell them to push through it. And then we like kind of do the, the postmortem on it, you know, how did you eat that type of thing? Um, and I might just have them push through it too. Like sometimes I have new athletes that don't really understand are, are still kind of fighting me on the idea of having easy days or easier days going into interval sessions. Sometimes I'll have ath- athletes that be like, they, when they first start with me, they'll like to have a hard group ride or something that isn't very easy on the Tuesday before we do intervals. And it's a good learning experience for them. I'm like, well, my numbers aren't, aren't where I want them, coach. I'm like, well, what'd you do yesterday? Oh, I went out on a hard group ride. Remember when I said we probably shouldn't do that? Well, this is a good learning experience for you, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So, so yeah, sometimes you just, uh, it's coaches or coaching athletes can be just kind of like um, working with kids, I guess. Um, Damien would know, know more about that than, than me or Cyrus. But um, you just, sometimes you have to let them have their little failures and then they learn it from experiences and that can be a little bit more impactful than you trying to tell them, you know, these are the things that you need to do to get good results. Um, and I think that's, I think that's all I have for that right now. 
Yeah, I think, yeah, there's some really, some really good points in there and I think the that's part of it is, is setting out if it's a max session, like a session where the numbers are going to be variable depending on how the athlete feels or whether they're on a good or bad day. It's important to let the athlete know that, um, which, yeah, clearly you've done if you've They've told them to do five max intervals. They they know that they're not desiring to hit a specific number, and because some athletes are, are so numbers and data driven, if you give them a number to hit and they can't hit it, then yeah, they don't see any worth in the session or mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah. So I think yeah, in that that way, that prescription is yeah going to to aid some athletes really well, and then. Uh, I've found myself personally, I um, would prefer to have that number to, to target just because um, I tend to find myself digging deeper if I've got that number there that I think, right, I have to hit this for this interval, which is obviously in a race isn't transferable whatsoever because you're not looking down at the number, you're trying to go to the finish line the fastest but I would just find it mentally easier to focus on a number rather than in my head thinking this is going to be a max effort. But then you do have the converse of that, which is that you, if you suddenly can't hit that number, then it is a lot more challenging. Whereas if it's simply a max interval, you think, oh, well, I can only do as well as I can do. So, Yeah, I think a lot the of it- framing is important, definitely. Yeah. I- I I would say that I, you could still have numbers to shoot for in that. Um, and one of the exercises that I have with my I have my athletes do is that uh, when they're done with the interval session, I have them average all of the average watts for the work intervals, and so they put that number down in their in their um, in their session notes, so they'd have that number for next time to target. And then if you get through four of those efforts at that average or above it, maybe, hopefully, um, you have that fifth one to just knock out at an all-out effort, and that one might go, that one might go up or down. Um, so, yeah, you can still have numbers to target on, in that situation. And um, so I, th- I still feel it's kind of the, the best of both worlds. And Damien, you were saying? Yeah. Um, I'll just add one one area because I, I was thinking about this and in my younger coaching days I may have actually prescribed uh, sessions that I knew the athlete couldn't do um, now I've changed a little bit since then I, uh, mm-hmm. I'm a little bit more respectful of the athlete and the efforts <laughs> um, because that it's maybe it works for some people in some ways but it's it's I don't think it's the best way to coach but the way I've reframed certain sessions if we're looking to test something but it's not like an outright test i'll say like this is the challenge so mm-hmm. if we're looking for a time to exhaustion at a certain number for example i'll say okay you got to make 60 minutes minimum and then just see how long you can go and the same with knowing like setting a baseline or knowing where someone is at the first time they're kind of doing intervals i'll say all right we're aiming for four but you can you can go on and do as many as you can um, as a challenge to see to see exactly where you are, rather than saying um, here is you know four, five, six efforts or whatever at a crazy high number, and you know that they're just going to fail. It just doesn't help anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I will add the one criticism that I would give of my own my approach is is 
what happens after a couple of years or not even that long, the athlete just gets tired of approaching intervals that way, which I, I have a solve for that, but I get, I don't know if that's a necessarily a, a new topic, but there, there is that psychological, psychological drain of having to look at an interval section se- session and saying, wow, I have to do this at the hardest prescribed instead of like, well, if you have yeah, numbers, that, if you have numbers and you're just shooting for targets, well, if you're in really good shape and you're shooting it for that number and it's a bit lower than what you need, then, well, then it wasn't that hard of an effort. And, um, yeah, so I would definitely say there's sometimes even when I'm doing my intervals, I undershoot and some of it's probably because I'm like, wow, well, if I don't have anything on any races on the calendar, then I might be not be, I might not be performing those intervals uh, the best that I could. Um, uh, and yeah, you are saying, Cyrus, uh, I have one other thought, but like, yeah, I think a bit, a bit, uh, part of it, big part of it again, there is the framing of it. And a lot of that comes down to the athlete's own psychology. So there's, you can look at a max, uh, effort and think, all right, this is going to be maximum amount of pain because pain is yeah. often the thing that's stopping you from mm-hmm. going harder at, mm-hmm. at those levels and it's quite daunting but alternatively you can think well i don't have to be hitting a number i just have to go as hard as i can go and that's mm-hmm. that's all it is like my like there's no it's almost simple in a way that you don't have to you don't get this performance anxiety of oh, i have to get this result because basically a a power output for a certain time frame is a result in your training that you're trying to achieve. You're just thinking, okay, I'm all I have to do is go as hard as I can. So from an athlete perspective, it's a matter of framing it then as well for, for the psychological stress involved in that training. Yeah. So ironically, um, pacing an interval session so that you have the maximal amount of Watts that you can attain uh, average over the session, right? So you're looking for, it would be the hardest session you could. And the theoretically those, those, uh, the power average power up foot for each one of those intervals would be relatively close to each other. Yet by the time you did it, you felt like you couldn't get go any harder pacing like that surprisingly isn't the hardest way to pace interval sessions. Um, anecdotally, and I, I probably have some science to back this up, but, um, if you pace and intervals where you do every single one is a maximal effort. Yeah. Right. So that's going to be even harder mentally for an athlete to do. Uh, there is some, there is some, uh, there is, you know, some data out there to show that that is a, a better way to get a, greater time at or near VO2 max than if you were going to do uh, the, it the way I prescribed, which then comes down to, hey, Jason, why aren't you prescribing your athletes to do intervals that way? And then my response is, go ahead and try doing it that way and see how many times you want to do intervals like that. <laughs> um, it comes down to, again, like interval training com- or uh, uh, endurance training comes down to t- the sustainability of things. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think... It's, it's it's a question about sustainability with that approach. Yeah. And then just, yeah, touching back to the, the session failure before we mm-hmm. move on to a next topic because we've, we've obviously gone a bit down a tangent. Mm-hmm. But the, the one session I would always 
tell an athlete to keep going on even if the intensity is dropping is race simulation sessions because often that is more a case of trying to just get a big load in one day, mm-hmm. like a big um, a pretty high stress training stress score in there and really just simulate that feeling of not feeling like you can put out any more power at the end of the race and having to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so an, like a, a typical example of that with the athletes I work with is training up for Australian nationals because the the two weeks before our national championships, you can't do race simulation by entering other races because it's over Christmas and New Year's and there tends to be just this perfectly badly timed gap in races. So the race simulation sessions are, are completely just athlete-induced where they're, they're doing these epic days with some intervals at the end of them. And in that case, I'll often get athletes coming to be really frustrated saying, oh, I couldn't hit these numbers at all. And I'm saying, yeah, that's because you you had 3,500 KJs before you even started the session. And that would be an instance where I would always say, no, just try and complete it, even though the numbers are down. And part of it is telling the athlete beforehand, look, this isn't going to be your prettiest looking interval session at the end of this day. But this is our goal here is to prepare you for this race that's coming up. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's also a good time yeah. to go on feel as well. Yeah. yeah. Being pretty loose with the, with the prescriptions probably, but just the idea that, yeah, it's, it's all going to be on feel. It's all, you have to use your uh, instinct a lot more, especially yeah. on race day and getting back into that, that feeling as well. Yeah. And I'll often prescribe some efforts there blinded as well, um, which I like, yeah, athletes to do because as sort of, yeah, Jason's um, strategies with his intervals, the the main idea around that is just making sure an athlete's not holding themselves back by just hitting a number. So if you're doing some intervals blinded where they're not looking down at the numbers, then, yeah, they actually might find, oh, I can do that even at the end of a crazy hard ride yeah i i would would take a moment to interject a little when you have a hammer everything is a nail here um but one thing that i would consider being the environmental physiology guy here is you know what are the environmental conditions um if you're sending on an athlete to do an interval session and it's 35 degrees out yeah of course they're not going to hit the numbers and you know uh, as long as, you know, things are healthy and they don't have to worry about falling over and hitting their head or anything like that. The, the interval sessions should be still okay to do. And again, like as long as they don't have to worry about, you know, heat stress type crazy um, sickness or anything like that. Um, so that's another thing to kind of, some athletes don't have that wherewithal to be to like, I'm at altitude or I'm at a really hot temperature or it's really cold and I didn't warm up really well. And my numbers are down. What, what's going on with my numbers? So there is, it is a little bit of talking with your athlete about, you know, everything from environmental conditions to, as we said before, the, the, how much they've recovered before or, 
before going into the session and uh, uh, nutrition before the session. All these things should be kind of um, tackled and discussed with the athlete and bad workouts uh, give a chance to open up that discussion. But uh, it's funny you mentioned the heat thing because I had that happen last week actually where I had three by 10 minutes on a program. The rider did three by five minutes and uh, we were trying to figure out what was going on and then I had a look at their file and their core body temp with the the core unit peaked before they even started the efforts at 39.37 degrees and it was 32 degrees outside. Hmm. I was like, yeah, no wonder. And then the heart Hmm. rate was really high after the efforts as well. I was like, man, Hmm. we're going to change something here. Hmm. Um, And we did a similar session a few days later, but earlier in the day, made sure the efforts were um, closer to the start of the ride. So it was as cool as possible. And uh, the difference was that the core body temp peaked after the efforts they were able to get through. And then I think the average temp for the day was 26 degrees or something. Um, So Mm. I don't know how closely like that's related, but it definitely was uh, a a good indicator that that must be, have something to do with it. Yeah. 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 And I think it's important to discuss with the athlete then in conditions such as those that the adaptation um you might get the same adaptation for doing 20 watts less in your efforts or doing them for a shorter amount of time because and jason is obviously a lot more across this than i am but the the idea of like the the training intervention isn't measured on the power in that you're putting through your cranks Mm -hmm. like as much as that's the only thing that we can actually look at often but it's actually what you're doing inside your body that's going to count so So many athletes would just get so focused on that. And unfortunately, the only thing that changes the CTL is the power that's going through as well. Mm -hmm. But um, the actual training benefit is going to be the same, even if the power is much lower and you're training in those conditions. Yeah, Um, it gets into a kind of a longer discussion probably for... Uh, probably some another episode about like where the benefits are and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's true. And at the end of the day, pragmatically, I just say try to get through the session as best you can. Put in the hard effort. And uh, if 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 there's something like they're overtrained or something like that, I I think with like the approaches to 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 with the training load modeling and that type of stuff, it, it's it's really rare I think to get athletes that are overreached or overtraining unless there's something really bad going on it's totally possible but it's almost it's it's like whooping cough or something like that you know it's like a episode of of um house and you're like what is this we're looking at oh he has he has smallpox you idiot no you know you're like well we haven't seen smallpox before (laughs) so uh i don't know where i'm going with that but like just the fact that like it's it's rare to see an athlete quitting a session because of, um, you know, because they're overtrained or something like that. I think if you're using training load modeling and that type of stuff, just because overtraining uh, doesn't come out of nowhere. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I yeah, I would I would say the same thing that in that most athletes, if you're working with a coach that's across everything and and monitoring closely it's a it is a very rare occurrence that you would you would get that so and ideally you have as few of those days as possible where you can't complete the sessions mm-hmm. because um yeah they're obviously mentally frustrating for the athlete and then also a day that you end up having to 
change change the program ahead and and do some sort of diagnosing of what's gone wrong there so the less of those the better well imagine having not having these tools yeah <laughs> yeah man yeah mm, yep yeah definitely uh while i think we've we've pretty much said all we have there does the or anyone in the audience have any questions on that particular topic before we move on raise your hand if you feel at any point but uh looks like we're good to move on to your topic damien what have you been thinking about this week cool well last week end of last week i kind of put my hand up to help someone train for an Ironman, a half Ironman, uh, which started me down this really kind of big rabbit hole and looking at how to best place three sports. But I'm not going to go off into a triathlon thing here. It, it sort of came to this point where I was like, okay, how do you actually structure a week and be able to get the most out of each session? How do you feel for these sessions? So it came down to this thing of like when designing any weekly program, whether that is triathlon or cycling or whatever, um, is thinking it not necessarily in the way of the training that you're doing, but the recovery. So how long do you need to recover from a day of training and when can you get back to a good solid workout um, the next time? Uh the thing with the triathlon stuff was it just you you put it, you put it all in into a week and it just seems like there's so much going on so it's a little bit different to cycling but it it still applies you know like when do you put your hard rides in uh, what does it look like the day before how does that impact that do you need a rest day after like all these small considerations and and the one thing that I sort of came back to was looking at doing this around the carbohydrate combustion and availability. And it was kind of the thing that was driving my decisions when I was looking at the first week of training um, for the triathlon stuff. And uh, I don't want to get into the weeds here. So I don't, I want to cut it, you know, like there's a lot of things you can do with expenditure and intake. There's, um, you know, like tracking intake and food diaries and things, and then detailed uh, expenditures and things. Um, and that's, and then there's like outside of that, there's the restricted carbohydrate availability, training interventions and carbohydrate periodization. So it can get really, really confusing. But mm-hmm. in simple terms, um, if we just think about it, how much carbohydrate will you potentially burn in a session and how much time do you need to fill up those stores again? And then how does that kind of impact training? Um, so... One thing I do have here, I've got a couple of examples of two sessions just to kind of give an idea of what I'm talking about. So if we talk about fuel availability um, and fuel use in two different types of sessions. So we have a like if we have a hit session and then we just have like a low intensity session. So if we have a five by five session. (laughs) They're making a huge (laughs) huge showing today. Yep. Um, So if we think about (laughs) those five by fives, they just pop up everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, 70 minute hit session and 140 minute low intensity session. Uh, If if you kind of work down through, by the time you have workouts, uh, sorry, warm ups and warm downs, um, you've got the main part of the session. So 90 minutes steady or the five by five, pretty much 
you will get to the same amount of carbohydrate needed to fuel both those sessions around 210, 220. And of course, that depends on the athlete, etc. But as an example, so you can see two totally different sessions, but and different durations, and they need the same carbohydrate intake. So for me, this shows like the importance of having high carbohydrate availability um, for the hit sessions, for example, um, because yeah, the the impact of the fueling can impact the session and then how it's performed and then the adaptations as a result of that. Um, so I'm interested from both of you uh, how you do it um, and how you think about this. Um, I, I want to say that uh, it does start to get a bit complicated once you get into the weeds here. Um, things that are helping me make the decisions at the moment are kind of um, these metabolic tests where they're modeling fueling based on specific power intensities. Um, that's kind of helping me make decisions around fueling the work, the actual work, but, but kind of how, where these sessions are placed um, and doing some rough calculations around that. Um, but overall for me personally, I think it's a lot of trial and error and figuring out exactly how someone responds and how they feel during a session with a specific load, um, how well they can recover based on other factors in their life outside of cycling and, uh, and how they can get the fuel in, in time. So probably, I don't know, um, starting with Jason, is, is this something you think about? Do you think about carb burn and store replenishment when designing a week? No. Um, <laughs> I mean, um, uh, I mean a, a little bit, but I try to keep it pretty pra- pragmatic and, um, uh, I don't know, is it pragmatism or nihilism? <laughs> One of the two. <laughs> um, I, I just, I, I think we were, we're, we talk about training load models a lot. I think part of the calculation to an extent uh, kind of serendipitously takes that into account um, as the, because it, um, if you were going to look at the banister model, it just kind of a, it works, right? So, um, uh, I mean, in terms of, you know, whether you're going to carb load it gets really, it really gets into some rabbit holes here. Um, some of it's kind of like, well, how do you even trust the calculation method that you're using to demonstrate that the carbohydrates have been burned that you say that have been burned? Um, and that's just a question I would have because I don't really have a lot of uh, knowledge about the literature that's out there. Some, some nutritionists. Uh, might come and tell me that he can get really accurate with it. it. Actually, when when you brought up this topic, I was like, we're probably going to end up opening up this topic and just kind of um, talking about it candidly. And at the end of the day, I'm just going to say we should bring Dr. Sam Impey on the show and talk to him about it because he's going to be like the the expert that I would consult on this. Um, and I would read his literature, or whatever. So I guess some of the approaches that are out there, you know, you could be talking about the low carb diet versus the high carb diet versus a kind of polarized kind of, uh, uh tr- not polarized training, but a polarized type of eating where you are, you know, uh, low carb during some sessions and high carb during others. And once you're starting to make claims around this, 
I think again, like you want to have a a good training study to back up what you're doing. And, and the last time I had any kind of exposure to this, I think there was one study that was looking at polarized nutrition, carbohydrate intake versus low carbohydrate intake versus high carb, uh, calorie intake. And it was with race walkers with Louise Burke. And I want to say they're the low carb did the worst. And I think there wasn't any differences between polarized and high carb, but, um, don't quote me on that. I would definitely say people should look that up before quoting me on that. So that's kind of my extent. And then it gets into this thing of amateur athletes versus professional athletes and cost versus benefits and how much time are you going to have, uh, this athlete work on this and that type of thing. So, um, you know, someone with a day job, getting into the nitty gritties of nutrition gets kind of tough. So it gets into what we've talked about before with the, with the plates that they give athletes to, to kind of help visualize them, the amount of food that they're going to eat and that type of stuff. So, um, yeah, but so those are just kind of my, my thoughts on it right now without diving really super deep into it. And yeah. Um, something that is on my list of things to read more about. And like I said, I'd love to see, uh, I'd love to have Sam on the show and talk about it. If he's out there, he, he does a lot of podcasts. So, yeah, that's all I have. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. So I think this is a, to answer the question you asked to Jason, I also wouldn't factor it into my training, but it is, I wouldn't factor it into my own training or the training I prescribe to athletes um, and and look at whether I'm going to be able to replenish uh, glycogen stores and have that carbohydrate available in time. It wouldn't be something I'd factor in, but as Jason was kind of pointing to, it's something that would happen anyway with a standard training load model. And if you, yeah, I think once you've got, um triathlons because you're doing multiple sessions every day then it's it is adding another factor and it's something that i would also i think i'd find myself looking into more then but because predominantly i'm prescribing one session a day and completing one session a day myself and then i yeah it wouldn't be something i'd use to to change my training but it is certainly a discussion i'd have with the athlete so i think so many the the most common misconception is just the amount you need to eat on a training day in carbohydrates to get back to square um just if you and i would often direct my athletes to an article i have on my own website on just that goes very mathsy into just the amount of carbohydrates burnt and obviously you're just relying on some models which may not be all that accurate and will obviously fluctuate a lot depending on the athlete but if you look at yeah the calorie expenditure during a a hard training ride where the the average watts are up there then and if if it's at an intensity where carbohydrate is the predominant substrate for fuel then i think they're just this constantly athletes will completely underestimate how much they need to eat. And then the most common thing I find with athletes I'm speaking to is 
I just cannot stop eating on my rest days. I like whatever happens, I'm just eating the whole day. I just have to reinforce that's because you're so in so much deficit from the day before. And they said, yeah, but I, I ate the whole day before. Like I was eating the whole time on my ride and I had carbs for dinner, but just, yeah, so many athletes just, it's so beneficial having a discussion to let them know how much carbohydrate is actually being utilized when they're riding. So they have that idea of how much they have to eat on those days. And then to, to touch on fueling sort of during the session and around the session, I like to work with athletes, especially in those race simulation sessions I was discussing earlier on practicing fueling. So getting your fueling strategy sorted and then particularly, yeah, the, the timing of the food before, what food you're eating and then during the ride because the amount of times you just hear someone saying oh, i could have won that race but had gastric issues like stomach upset or whatever and or just yeah had had a stitch had a sore tummy had whatever the issue is and i've definitely been there myself and i'd say like most most athletes have been there themselves and it is super frustrating but if it's something that you neglect in training then it's something that you can can face the consequences of in a race so there yeah sort of the link back around it's not something i would use to i would factor into the training plans that i'm setting out but it's definitely something that is important to discuss with every athlete and in particular beginners yeah it's very true very true yeah i think it really becomes important if you start going down this this sort of training intervention with uh restricted carbohydrate availability and things because you have to plan it out more because otherwise there can, there's potential for um, bad things to happen, whether that is training or just burning an athlete out or or anything like that. Um, but the one big takeaway that I got from it was after I was making these daily calculations or just looking at training sessions a bit more closely and the burns based on the burn rate based on modeling and stuff, you know, um, someone having a three-hour ride uh, with mostly endurance stuff and then a little bit of tempo. At their tempo, they're burning 200 grams of carbs an hour in the model. Um, so just having an understanding that even at that level, you really start burning a lot. And so not only really thinking about the fueling during the ride, but then trying to get it in afterwards as well. And that, that was just the, the biggest thing that I sort of had an aha moment with this week was, uh, was the, the very, the careful considerations around exactly what type of intensities you're doing and just, just thinking about fueling that and having a bit more of a strategy rather than just going into it and saying, I'm just going to have just 60 grams an hour or 70 grams an hour. And then that's it, but not understanding exactly, um, how much you need, um, to have a good session at bare minimum. Yeah, and I think it's important to just keep in mind the big picture goal, which is mostly to increase performance and go faster on your bike for anyone that you're coaching. And if fueling is compromising that ability, then it's something that needs to be addressed. So if it's, yeah, if you are unable to complete sessions like we were discussing earlier because of fueling, which could definitely be a, 
a factor in why an athlete yeah. all of a sudden yeah. goes out one day and can't do a desired thing, then that's, yeah, then it's definitely, I would say there's no instance where it's worthwhile, whatever the nutrition intervention is, to sacrifice the training intervention. Um, obviously, there's situations where you plan around that. So you plan your, your lower glycogen level rides um, and, yeah, you intentionally underfuel. It's probably not a, a nice way to describe it, but you would have that in have that planned in the program and you're obviously not going to be doing your, your hit sessions on that day. But, yeah, if, if there is a case and it may be an athlete going rogue where they've read all of this literature or often in most cases a tiny pocket of the literature hmm. and then tried to apply it to everything. Um, if that is becoming an issue, then it's something that needs to be addressed straight away because I think, yeah, Paramount is just the, the performance side of things first. Have they been listening to or watching Tim Noakes' Twitter feed? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm, there's, there's pretty endless amounts of ways for... For people to find information that will take them, take them down some pretty <laughs> tumultuous paths. Endless memes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I don't. I don't really have any other thoughts about that. It's just something that you know. I have a whole bunch of papers that I've collected over the years. And I'm like, oh, I should get to those at some point. Cool. Uh, so I think we've addressed all of that. just wanted to take a quick break here to say thanks for stopping by and listening to the show and to give you a quick reminder about who we are and where you can find us. The show is a collaborative project between sports scientist and cycling coach Dr. Jason Boynton, professional cyclist and cycling coach Cyrus Monk, and myself, Damien Roos, professional cycling coach and author of the Cycling Science Digest. If you want to get in touch with any of us or find out more about what we do, check out the show notes of this episode for links to each of our websites or social media accounts. Also, a reminder that you can be part of the show too. We host the show live on Clubhouse every week. Just search Clubhouse for the Cycling Performance Club and you'll see our scheduled room. And with that, let's get back into it. So I think we'll go on now to Jason's topic, which we got a little preview of last week because yeah. he's thinking more than a week in advance. <laughs> but we'll, uh, we'll yeah, hear from Jason what he's thinking. I was excited for this one. Um, and to be honest, it's, it's a little like that training plan topic that we had where it was one of those things where I'm uh, – something about it just irked me. Um, so you read on, you know, maybe these bicycle magazines, cycling magazines, or training blogs, that type of thing. Um, and you, you have these workouts that claim that they increase FTP. And these, these have always kind of like uh, irked me in like a, just kind of this visceral way. But I never really had the, t I never really took the time to just think about it and figure out why, what it was, uh, until I read one that was by a sports scientist, and I was like, mm, uh, you, I was just like, ah, 
you you should know better. So after a, a fair bit of deliberation on this issue, uh, I've come to my conclusion. And what I'm going to do today with you guys is I'm going to lay out my conclusion, and then I'm gonna just going to break down the argument piece by piece, and then I'll have like places in there to kind of uh, stop and ha- get your guys' thoughts on it, just to make sure my thinking on this is correct. So my thought is... Um, Here's my conclusion. That is, uh, there is no workout that increases FTP in well-trained cyclists. And to clarify that, the, the subtitle of that, sub, yeah, is the, the assertion that certain workouts have the sole benefit and ownership over increasing FTP demonstrates a significant misunderstanding of current endurance training science. And that's, I wrote that down so I could say it all incomplete. And um, so today I'm on a mission to kill some cherished beliefs. And so I guess just a little bit of clarification again about these uh, workouts. You know, you're going to find them in layman's training blogs and potentially videos on YouTube and that type of thing. Um... And so I actually today I went out and I went into um, into this realm as much as I try to avoid it. Uh, I think I've made the joke with Damien that I have a threshold of two layman's training articles a day. Otherwise, I've just I just get fed up with it. <laughs> For me, I just rather go Elitist. to st- yeah. Elitist I, I know. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I was like, it, yes, very elitist. But you know, uh, for the for, uh, for for the I do it for the podcast. I did it for the podcast today. So if we could, thank get, you. Yes, thank you. So if there's any listeners, it just for all my trials and tribulations, if you could give the give us a share uh, on uh, the suffrage <laughs> for the suffering, the suffering I had to go to today, reading uh, training blogs and uh, watching training uh, videos on YouTube. Um, so anyways, the, so, so basically what are they? Um, and from my little quick analysis, what, what I found was, is that they're, they just seem to be like all over the board. Some are high intensity interval training. Some are sprint. Uh, some say increase the duration of your rides, but overwhelmingly the style or the type of workout that, claim to increase FTP are workouts that train in in or around the functional threshold power zone. So that'd be like sweet spot, sweet spot workouts, lactate threshold workouts, that type of thing. Um, five by five. So they're all in that kind of Coggin zone range. Um, is this, so I'll just stop right there. Is this something that you guys are familiar with? Have you seen these? Articles, these videos, that type of thing. I guess I don't know if we can name names or not. I don't care. So, I mean, one of the articles I was on, uh, or one of the videos I watched was with uh, cycling global uh, GCN. It was a global cycling network, and that was that was a struggle to get to. But um, yeah, so you guys know what I'm talking about. Yeah, GCN was front of mind when you were talking about that, and just uh, I don't. I'm not across the Zwift sphere, but the amount of screenshots I've seen of just FTP builder workouts, um, 
that or just even yeah people's Strava just FTP builder all of these different things which it's pretty much guaranteed that each FTP builder workout you look at will be different yeah, yeah. to to the last one but yeah that's the classic one and if I yeah if if I was getting into it and thought I want to increase my FTP and then saw one of those workouts I'd probably do it as well yep yep um so Damien, I suppose you're aware of those types of articles, those types of claims around workouts as well. I don't think I've seen one or read one in a long time, but uh, yeah, I'm aware of this thinking, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think just talking about like what is FTP, I guess it would be a good good thing to, to start with. And, um, you know, this FTP is something that, Andrew Coggin made up and it's not necessarily scientifically valid. It was more just kind of a pragmatic way to try to have his own type of critical power. Um, and in this conversion that is often used to calculate FTP, we talked about that quite a bit in a few episodes ago where, you know, the 0.95 conversion for a 20 minute power is not really been validated. It wasn't when they came out with it. Uh, or scientifically, I mean, there's some research on it now, but when we talk about scientific thresholds, physiological thresholds, we talk about, you know, lactate threshold one and two and ventilatory threshold one and two. And there's a little bit of literature out there and how FTP relates to those, but it's, it's important to point out that these things are different. And so FTP where FTP relates to the actual physiological zones that are important to train uh, is not necessarily the same thing. Um, and so, uh, so and it gets into the, well, why are we increasing FTP? Well, obviously, it's, it's, a, it's a component of endurance performance. We've talked about this before. And, you know, uh, even, even for someone who is a pro sprinter in a, uh, in the pro peloton, they still would have a very high functional threshold power um, uh, in order to compete, you know, higher than most amateurs would. Okay, so getting back into the functional threshold, um, I don't know if you guys have any th- thoughts about just FTP in general that you want to throw in there off the bat. Uh, yeah, it's pretty important in <laughs> to have a high FTP in professional cycling. I think if you could tell anyone that you could increase their FTP, then they would pay you a lot of money to do that for them. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a definitely a priority for most athletes. Yeah, so you can see why it is a priority. That's a really good point. Like it's 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 a priority because it correlates really highly with how you're going to perform in competition, right? Threshold. thresholds is very important for endurance athletes so jumping back into the topic where we were talking about you know types of workouts that claim to increase functional threshold power i want to go into some of the arguments that i had for it um so first thing that like stands out to me is the principle of specificity or the specificity principle um and so you would think if you train at threshold, that would allow you to increase threshold, which is a fair assertion and a fair reasoning. Um, and not only on top of that, uh, it's functional threshold power. And 
there's a bit, a bit of skill to maintaining power um, at a maximum amount over a certain time. So that gets into pacing. So doing uh, uh, efforts at threshold or near threshold are arguably going to help you pace. And if you improve your pacing, you could increase your FTP. Um, another argument that I've come across for it or evidence or what might be justifying people's thinkings on this is uh, in the Coggin and Hunter Allen book, and you guys might remember this, there's a table in there and it's called Expected Physiological and Performance Adaptations for Zones. And it's like table 3.2 in the second edition. So, And if you look at zone four, which is lactate threshold, the lactate threshold zone in the, in the book, uh, you'll notice that there's four plus signs in the table for increasing lactate threshold. So the lactate threshold zone is the best way to increase lactate threshold according to Coggins' book. Um, because, and in terms of like pluses, four pluses is like the maximum amount of pluses I think anything gets uh, on that table anywhere. So, you know, there's a big assertion that training at this zone is going to be benefit your threshold, um, according to Coggin and Hunter's book. Uh, the other argument is, is that, well, untrained and, recre and recreationally trained cyclists uh, will definitely benefit from this type of training, but it doesn't really say much because they will benefit from just about any kind of training. Uh, and the last argument that I've come across is with... Uh, Inigo San Milan, and I, and I want to say, Damien, you've listened to his, some of his stuff, and, I, and I've also listened to some of his stuff, but it's, uh, and I haven't had a chance to go back and listen to his thing, but it, he does do training that takes consideration of lactate threshold, but I don't think he's using Coggins zones necessarily, so it's hard to say where it sits physiologically um, in comparison. I think when he talks about his zone two, which is like the main thing that he talks about, he's talking about a specific lactate level, mm -hmm. blood lactate mm -hmm. level. Um, I can't remember what it was, like 1.8 millimoles mm. or something. So um, so it's, it's a very individual. Yeah, so it's hard to, for me to be like, well, this is this, is this um, below LT1 or above LT1? Um, so without listening to him and understanding where his, his arguments are around that, um, I don't know, but, um, yeah, Cyrus, have you ever heard any other arguments that could potentially promote the idea of using functional threshold power or sweet spot training to improve FTP? Uh, yeah, that's the, the classic old Lance one was he just swore by always training just below and because that will push it up and he thought if you trained above it would push it down so and that was i think like pretty widely used in the 90s and early 2000s i think like 
And that's something that, unfortunately, guys from that era that are coaches now will will um, just still swear by that because that's what worked for them. So it's definitely something that is still used a lot, just that theory of, yeah, sweet spot, so just below your FTP or at around that intensity and that will push it up is the theory. Mm, yeah, uh, that's interesting. Uh, but again, like if it's, you know, if we're talking about lactate threshold, then that's just, that's kind of a line. Well, depending on which one he's talking about, um, LT1 or LT2. And if it's below LT1, then that's just low intensity training, right? That's just so, um, and yeah, I guess I don't want to get into too many tangents, but yeah, I've not, I, I hadn't heard that one. Um, but I had heard things like, uh, you don't want to become acidic, I guess, or have produce a lot of lactic lactic acid when you're training, uh, because that affects your ability to adapt. And there is some evidence around uh, mitochondri- mitochondrial biogenesis and acidosis uh, to kind of back that up. I think it was with rats last time I studied, uh, last time I saw it. This a study on I don't forget if they did it in humans or not yet, but that's kind of some of um, Dave David Bishop's work, but not super strong evidence. And the the other thing is is like with FTP, FTP is probably actually higher than these threshold zones. So um, yeah, you're getting back into like that's not maybe not what you would want to do. The other one I just thought of there as well, the other rationale and sort of methodology I've heard is it's the bet that zone. So if you're taking about 90% of FTP or yeah, the high zone three, low zone four is the best way for maximum kilojoule output mm-hmm. with uh, two intensity factor ratio mm-hmm. or like to TSS ratio. So in that, the the well the opposite of polarized training in a way, but you are then yeah getting the maximum energy output for each ride for minimum stress on the body mm-hmm. in theory. Yep. Um, so that's the other way of looking at it. Yep. Yep. I've I've seen that. That's a chart that is also described in Coggins' book as well. So that's that's all. I could come up with for, you know, arguments for using uh, threshold or sweet spot training as a way to increase FTP. Um, And then, um, so the, which gets me into my next uh, part of my train of thought here is the the evidence against it where this, where functional threshold part, uh, sorry, where functional threshold power and sweet spot training the arguments for it kind of fall apart. And first thing for me, and this isn't totally damning, but for me, it's kind of a a cardinal sin, is Hunter's and Coggins' table in their book, it has no sources, right? And so you have no idea how they quantified those, their pluses that they put in there. Uh... There's also no mention in the graph of the durations that you're supposed to hold those intensities for. And, and on that, I want to say I remember having either a, 
a back and forth with Coggin somewhere. I think it was either on Facebook Messenger or it might have been uh, when he was presenting a webinar or something like that. And I asked him about that and about his graph. And I said, where did you get those papers? Because I was interested in reading those papers. I wanted to read the primary literature because I'm into getting into classic papers like that. And his response was, 20 years of reading of endurance training papers. So he couldn't even like cite one. He just said, this is just from my own experience. And so again, for me, that's kind of a cardinal sin because we have to take his word on it. It's, it's an unfalsifiable. So there's, uh, there's, and that means there's no way to adjust it over time when we, when we come out with new research. And there's just no way we have to just trust that what he what he says is correct. And that's just an argument from authority. And so and and I've seen coaches cite this table and discuss this table like like it's like it's the Bible or something like it's totally legit and not to say it's totally wrong. But it's not scientific in nature at all because we can't falsify it. We, we have no way to see what sources he has. And, um, and yeah, and the other kind of point with the principle of specificity, I mean, yes, it's, it's a good rule of thumb, I think, uh, but it's not the end-all be-all. And we know this just by looking at... Uh, you know, performance papers that did like weight training with trained cyclists and saw improvements or added heat to training and saw improvements. And these are definitely not specific uh, in a sense, but you can still see improvements in performance. So um, the, the idea that you have to train at threshold or near threshold in order to improve threshold is is not necessarily true um, and can be demonstrated as uh, not, I want to say false, but not necessarily true just by kind of looking at that. And um, yeah, so I think right now the best counter arguments that I've seen that kind of to go against uh, L lactate threshold and sweet spot training as a way to improve functional threshold power um, are these studies that look at training intensity distribution. And you guys are probably aware of those. That's like for most people, you know, those polarized training studies, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. and then for the, for the audience is like, well, what is a training distribution study? And, and I don't know if any of you, you guys, Cyrus, are you going to jump in and explain what a training distribution study is or do you have any idea? Yeah, so, yeah, basically for anyone listening, you're just taking a sample of someone's training over a number of weeks or obviously a population's training over a number of weeks and looking at the percentage of time they're spending in each zone so it depends on the zone model you're using. So often these will be done with a, a three-zone model. Yep, exactly. Um, the polarized study ones. So that is your zone one would be below LT1, which is the first uh, lactate threshold, and that's entirely aerobic. Um, well, obviously not entirely, but... Lots of <laughs> aerobic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. lots of aerobic. And then... 
yeah, predominantly aerobic system is supplying the energy there. And then between LT1 and LT2, which would be the sweet spot stuff and where you would see your threshold sitting. And then, well, your FTP. And then, so that would be your zone two. And then zone three is above LT2, which a lot of people will correlate the FTP with LT2. And that is anything in that zone three then would be anaerobic. And well, basically you're looking... I wouldn't at, say it's anaerobic, <laughs> right? It's just above... It's above yeah, threshold. Above, above threshold. Yeah. Still aerobic above component there. threshold. Yeah. So, yeah, still, still a lot of aerobic contribution and then more of a contribution from anaerobic means. And then the basically these training distribution studies are looking at the time spent in each of these zones. So predominantly for us as endurance cyclists, even if you're looking at a sprinter, they will be spending the vast majority of their training in that zone one. Yeah. So the so without the lower getting, well, I'll just cut you off here because I just uh, just wanted. I just kind of wanted a, a, break to th- a break to think, and I know you do a really good job on explaining just like how the studies are, are laid out without, uh, so, um, so, but one of the things to, to mention within these training distribution studies is there's another split with them is to look at them retrospectively, right? So they would be looking uh, at professional cyclists or something like that and collecting all their training data and looking back to see what they actually did. Right. So there's yep. a number of studies like that. That's actually pretty easy to do. And then the other type of study that's with this is prospective studies where the scientists would come in and they'd have a group of cyclists and they would say like, hey, you guys are all going to train this way and you guys are all going to train this way. And so there's a very a much more controlled study, a lot harder to do this. So and and so what the retrospective studies say is there's the athletes, professional endurance athletes are generally using like either a polarized or a pyramid type training distribution. And there's not a whole lot of athletes that are doing a lot of threshold training or a, a lot of time in uh, zone two or around uh, threshold. And the prospective studies where they, the, there's not a lot of those, but um, the ones that I've seen and the meta-analysis that I was looking at on it is that when you do polarized training compared to threshold training, the benefits to threshold are better, right? And so you're, we're looking at in those perspective studies where they did total polarized, where they were totally polarized, right? Um, they saw greater improvements in threshold without any time at threshold, right? So... That just, to me, that says like, well, you can increase threshold without any time, and you can increase it better without any time spent in sweet spot or, thresh- or lactate threshold. Um, so that is probably one of, one of the biggest uh, na- nails in the coffin for the whole threshold and functional threshold power workouts that claim to increase um, uh Threshold. It's not to say they don't at all. It's not to say there is no benefit from it. But it's just, but there is to say that it, it's obviously not the best way to do it because you can increase um, threshold power and performance 
by not spending any time in the zone by quite a bit uh, and, and better than if you were going to spend more time in, in the threshold. And um, yeah, I, I think I think that's what I have in terms of like things in terms of arguments against the functional threshold power and sweet spot training uh, zones. I don't know if you guys have any other things, any other like counter, kind of counters to sweet spot workouts and lactate threshold store, uh, workouts um, as these awesome ways to improve functional threshold power. Damien, do you have any thoughts? I've, I've been trying to think about exactly what types of sessions I prescribe uh, around this and I'm having a hard time coming up with any time that I would just go straight out, prescribe something at FTP and say the purpose is strictly to increase FTP. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I work around it a lot, but yeah, if I'm if I'm doing uh, any type of prescribed workout at FTP, it's for those reasons um, that you mentioned, like the specificity of it, the um, learning how to put the force through the pedal and the pacing, all the things that you can't like it's a very specific intensity to sit at. It's it's difficult uh, and uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but it's not impossible to sit there for longer periods. But it does take time to get you, wrap your head around actually um, being able to sit at that zone and just get used to it. You don't get comfortable, but you just I think you get used to it. Um, but uh, I'm kind of interested then um, where does – lactate production and lactate clearance come into this discussion um, because these are the the physiological thresholds that we're talking about that are close to FTP but how do they fit into the discussion how how do they contribute to FTP if at all Mm -hmm. Um, yeah I guess for me um, based on you know those prospective um, training intensity distribution studies, I, I think for me what it kind of points to is that the physiological adaptations that would reduce threshold, uh, sorry, would reduce lactate um, and blood lactate or muscle lactate, those things can be stimulated without being there. All right, so again, the I think right now the standing is is that with trained athletes that mitochondrial biogenesis best occurs with volume over intensity. So if mitochondria, yeah. if you could point to mitochondria and say, well, you know, these are part of, um, you know, if. If you can point at that and say, like, well, this is part of the equation that reduces uh, lactate production, then you can see how you can see how, at least in one sense, how it is possible to uh, stimulate your ability to or or improve your ability to sit at threshold without sitting at threshold. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. The next part of the kind of train of thought here is is the rebuttal or the devil's advocate um, for the 
person that would be pro FTP sweet spot zone training, or I call it my notes here, sweet spot strikes back. <laughs> um, so first of all, as, as, as you said, Damien, and you pointed out, I, I'm, I, I wouldn't say that I've never um, prescribed uh, workouts in these zones. I just had one of my athletes enter the room, and he will tell you that I prescribe 2x20s to him every once in a while. He's not a fan, but he does get them. Um, but there's not necessarily the, the end result is to be like, well, this is for improving threshold training. Or uh, this is, you know, the end result here is not to improve functional threshold power. Um, and I'm certainly not saying there's zero benefit to threshold and sweet spot zone training. Right? It's just not necessarily, it's just, I think it's just myopic to sit, to think that training and threshold necessarily improves threshold in the best way. And the, so the other kind of response here that I potentially have is um, just kind of nitpicking these intensity distribution studies. And so I'll get into, you know, I'll take a moment to be critical of them. Um, so first of all, the, the way these studies are done, from my understanding, they are not really great for determining what type of workouts you've performed. Would you agree with that, Cyrus? Like, um, for, so for example, I'll, I'll just give you an example and let's see. So you could have a certain percentage that you spend in zone four. So you could be in zone four for maybe 10% of your training time, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that athlete experienced zone four in a physiological, as physiologically meaningful way. So they could have had zone four because it was spaced over the course of five workouts because they climbed a hill too hard or something like that, as opposed to the zone four that they experienced was in a single workout that focused on zone four. So there's yeah. these studies aren't really good at showing what kind of workouts athletes are doing. They just show that like there was time spent in zone four. And and I think most people would understand that the you know zone a zone four heart rate or a, uh, I'm sorry they since these are all based off of uh, I said zone four because it, um, we were talking about Coggin zones so it's get a little bit tricky yeah, I was yeah, yeah. Say so, we should, so, we so in the studies there you know let's say like zone they're talking zone two which is our threshold zones again with the studies it has the three zones. And so let's say like in the studies, there's a certain percentage of the zone, uh, zone two, which is again, threshold zone, a little bit of confusing, confusion there. Sorry about that. Um, but like I said, that, that, that zone two could be very different. It's all measured the same. And, um, uh, I would say sitting in zone four or sorry, zone two after an hour is going to be a different physiological or stimulus than what zone two uh, is after two minutes. So 
it doesn't yeah. the studies don't really take that into account really great. So you got to be aware of that. I think the fact that they use heart rate for the distribution as opposed to power helps uh, kind of normalize uh, and kind of counter that argument a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's just something to be aware of. Um, but do they add up time in zone or do they just do it per session? Like they average it out over the entire session? That's a good question. And I think what they do is, um, the way I understand it is, is because this is how they do it in training peaks. So I would imagine it's really similar is if you imagine like every second of your, um, of your, of your workout was like a little ping pong ball. Right. And, and that ball had a one, two or three on it. And you would just take all these ping pong balls and put them in basically containers and whichever ping pong balls filled up the highest in that container would be how you determine the zone. So you're looking, you're taking like every second of, of all your workouts and dropping and figuring out what zone that second was in. And then you're just putting it in a, in a big massive graph, like bar graph, basically. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, at least, I mean, that's how they do it, would do it in training peaks to figure out distributions. I would imagine they're doing something really similar in these papers. So far, um, this is where I, I'm on the kind of the cusp of this, like I said, I'm just going to, and my next step is to get a little bit more into the, the actual studies. Cause I've been just reading like the meta analyses and some of the reviews, um, on the training distribution stuff. Um, yeah. So, uh, another kind of thing to consider with these is one with the retrospective intensity distributions It's really important to point out that just because looking back at how these tr pros are training doesn't mean how they're, they're training the best way because they, it might be just tradition or whatever. And we have plenty of talks on this podcast about how tradition isn't always the best way to approach things. So it could be, you could use the same argument for the retrospective studies. You're just like, well, they're traditionally not really training the right way. Um, so, and the other big thing to factor in with pros is the amount of time spent racing mm -hmm. and racing is where obviously there's no control over mm -hmm. that. But if you've got someone going to race, uh, Alpine tour, like if, if they've just done the Dauphiné before, coming up to the Tour de France, that is a hell of a lot of time in that zone two, in the three zone model, mm -hmm. because all of the climbs are essentially going to be in zone two, um, unless they're yeah racing at the top or the, the, the small sections in zone three. But yeah, the majority of that day is, those days are going to be zone two. So even if they desire to use a polarized model in their training, in a race situation, you don't have a choice. And those lead up races make up the majority of the training for a lot of athletes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just more reasons why the prospective studies are much better evidence, uh, for the arguments I'm making. However, there's very few prospective studies out there. And this review came out in like 2018. So I want to see if there's been any more prospective studies, um, to look at 
And if you only have a few handful of studies, there's always kind of that argument that things could still regress to the mean and we might not be right on it. But right now, with the evidence that we have, it appears that, you know, that threshold and uh, thresholds aren't necessarily increased best by riding at threshold. Um, and the, the other thing is if we have this very small set of perspective studies that have looked at uh, training intensity distributions, we have an even smaller set that has looked at just well-trained cyclists. Because when you start, you know, there's the other perspective studies have looked at other endurance sports. And when, but when you get into running and cross-country skiing and rowing, there's all different kinds of other factors that could fit into that, into that, that training uh, intensity distribution and could um, potentially be different. So this is one of the things that you want to kind of be careful of when you're extrapolating things for cycling off of studies that were done in other endurance sports. Um, but yeah, I, th I think those, those, those are my main um, criticisms uh, or things to be aware of around these training inter intensity distribution studies. And um, I think, uh, and so the other, the last kind of argument that I had that the proponents of sweet spot training uh, as a way to increase FTP, they could say, well, we're just ahead of the science, which I hate that argument. And <laughs> but it's like, well, how do you know you're ahead of the science if you don't have science to tell you you're ahead of the science? So, um, but yeah, those, those are my, my pros, I think, are my, my criticisms of my, of my, um, of my anti, yeah, those, those are my strike back comments. I don't know if you guys have any other things that kind of jump on to kind of make criticisms of the polarized training model studies or anything like that. Yeah. I think the, the hardest thing is to do a perspective study on that with, well, like elite level cyclists mm -hmm. because, um, <laughs> I don't think I could see myself. I, there's, I can't see any point in a year where someone would present me a six-week study and I'd be able to say yes to either one or the other. Mm -hmm. um, and that's me who's keen to contribute to research. So when you've got others who are more reluctant, it's going to be even more difficult. But it's just with any racing in there, it's impossible to prescribe because like, you can even think, okay, well, like racing... Racing in Belgium is usually actually quite polarized in its nature because it's either easy on the flat or punching in and out of corners up small bergs. Mm -hmm. But if there's a day I'm in a breakaway, then the entire day is in zone two. Mm -hmm. So like yep. the being able to to do a prospective study around people who are racing is gonna be really difficult. Mm -hmm. And then for someone in a preparation phase, it's gonna be difficult to tell them to completely have their training one way or the other mm -hmm. um because most cyclists are used to a combination of both methods and are going to be pretty reluctant to completely give up on training in one or two of those zones 
um, for a significant period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was another th- criticism you could have of the the actual prospective studies that they do. Um, you know, they have very small groups for the people that they're training. They're usually like eight people or something like that. Um, that's not. Uh, there's an, one that had like 48 uh, athletes, but it was combined over runners, cyclists, triathletes, cross country. Um, athletes so um sounds a little bit bigger cohort but still uh but you can say the most of that you can have that same criticism across sports science studies in general um so just moving on uh so to the other types of workouts that you might see on these training blogs that uh, that would be promoted as ways to increase ftp there's high intensity interval training uh, and then that gets down into like, okay, high intensity interval training definitely improves, um, in p- performance. Um, but then it's kind of like, okay, well, which one of those high intensity interval training sessions is the best and how do you know what's the best and how it, or you could say, well, we looked at time at or near VO2 max, and that should be a good, uh, way to determine which one's the best. And uh, I can say that might not necessarily be true. Um, and so the other thing is, is, um, it gets into this kind of where I'm going with this argument is that, okay, well, if we only use hit sessions, if that's the best way to get to where we want to go, then we could probably only do it three times a week, right? So you're not going to do hit sessions every day. And this is part of one of um, one of the arguments that I have is that if you take any one of these workouts, whether high intensity interval training or training in sweet spot or threshold, if it's, if it's the best way to increase functional threshold power, then wouldn't your functional threshold power improve linearly as you increase those workouts, the number of those workouts in your training? So if, if it's the best way to do it, then wouldn't you get better, wouldn't your threshold get better as you incorporate it into your workout seven times a week? And we, and everyone would be like, that's crazy. What are you, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, obviously it's, there, it, there's something else going on here. So we have to consider something else that's outside of these quote unquote workouts that are increased uh, functional threshold power. So it's like, oh, so you can't do these every single day and hope to see a benefit. And so the same thing with a high intensity interval training, you can probably, they say two to three times a week, but if I only did high intensity interval training, but I, but I decided to, to have lighter recovery rides in between those rides. Yes. I've increased the amount of time that, uh, I've done the workouts, uh, the amount of, the volume of the training and the amount of kilojoules of work done, but I'm probably going to increase the performance as well. But I'm able to do that, but it, I wouldn't be able to add more sessions into of, of hit into the week, but I could add more sessions of low intensity training. And so now I'm getting away from the point where I'm, it's not just one workout that is increasing FTP. Now I'm have at least two types of workouts. And so and then you could say, well, okay, well, not high intensity training, not threshold training. Maybe if maybe low intensity 
training is the best way to increase functional threshold power as a, as a single workout. And so maybe it's day after day after day of long rides at low intensities that increases threshold power. Um, if you could ride enough to do that. But it still doesn't change the fact that at some point you would need a rest day. And, and, and maybe incorporate, instead of incorporating a rest day, you could have a low volume day. And now all of a sudden you have two different types of workouts again. And where I'm going with this is, is functional threshold power is not about a single workout. It's, it's about multiple different types of workouts at different intensities, different durations, and different loads. And, and so, again, getting back to my original kind of statement in the beginning, looking at a single workout as a way to increase FTP is very myopic. And I am Jason Boynton, and I am done speaking. What do you guys think about that? I had just trying to finish this off kind of quickly because I know we're getting a little bit long here. I don't have any really anything to add, really. Um, I think you've made your your points on a lot of different things. It seems like I've come to pretty similar conclusions without going through that entire process myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I tried. It was something. It was something different. Um, well, this the, week. the idea that you want to go through step by step and actually figure out, you know. Give, giving yourself reasons why you wouldn't do it um, is admir- admirable, definitely. Um, yeah, I think um, that's like part of it is you, as you're setting out a, a training plan, you want to have for each session a purpose of having the session in there and be able to justify that to the athlete. Mm-hmm. And with each session, there's also the possibility of saying, well, why should that be there? Why don't you have something else instead? And it's often, Mm -hmm. it can get to the point where if you say, if I hear someone saying, I'm doing this session um, today, it's very easy to just say, ah, that's a silly session. Why are you doing that? It's not that useful. But the reality is (laughs) if there's a session, yeah, there isn't a session, like you said, that is the best session or the most useful session that we know of. So the, there's not just a possibility. And if there was, you still couldn't do that every day of the week or every mm-hmm. every day that you're not having recovery. So I think there's it's guaranteed that some sessions are going to be more beneficial to building FTP than other sessions. But I think... The in conclusion, really, it's going to be the mixture in the right order and spaced out properly over a training plan that's actually going to have the desired outcome of increasing the FTP. Yeah, I I think they'll eventually maybe write this up in an article and hopefully maybe publish it somewhere. And my hopefully my thoughts will be a little bit more concise when I write them down. Um, thanks for the listeners that, that powered through that. Um, the only counter they could have for this whole thing was, is started like this. It, it, I said, or my counter argument for my whole rant here is functional threshold power isn't the end all be all for cycling training, which is true. 
right? There's other components to it. It's an important component, but it's not everything. And as we've discussed in earlier episodes, training, uh, increasing cycling performance involves skills training and sprint training and other types of training outside of just trying to increase FTP. And, and you know, so these other types of training are important. So the argument could be, the counter argument for my spiel could be is that like, yes, we know that FTP uh, isn't going to increase linearly with every single session that we add in. We have to also add in these other sessions. And so interspersed between functional threshold power sessions, we would add these other types of sessions, which would be like sprint training and you know skills training and other types of training, whatever you want, stomp drills or whatever. Uh, not that I would do those, but you get my point. So that's the only like that was the kind of playing devil's advocate with my own argument was was this and and i guess i mean if you decided that your best way to increase functional functional threshold power was massive amounts of volume and you intersperse those massive amounts of volume with uh these other types of training i would say there's probably worse ways to train i wouldn't know i wouldn't necessarily <laughs> say it would be the best but it would work i guess Probably better than doing functional, doing uh, sweet spot training every single day. But yeah, um, yeah, that's, I don't know if you guys had any thoughts on that, but I was like, I was like, okay, just me playing devil's advocate and trying to break down some, my argument somewhere. Yeah, I think um, the, the main thing is if someone comes to you telling you they've got a session that increases FTP you you would send them to this discussion and, <laughs> or asking like the, the most common thing for a question from an athlete i think or or desire if if there's no race objective it's ah uh, let's just try and get my ftp up and i think yeah if you are getting questions on why is this here why isn't this here that kind of thing then you sort of have to go through all the steps that you've gone through there to to come to the conclusion in that there is no one session. It's a combination. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's all I have. And I, um, I get to the end of this and I'm like, thank you for anyone that's still listening. (laughs) It was, but like, that's just, you know, it's one of those things where because it's so common and I think people just jump onto it. It's, I think it's important to start, addressing these type of arguments and this is the first time i've kind of laid it out like this and uh thanks for you guys for your your feedback and your input on this so it was important to me i appreciate it um thank you yeah so with that said thanks for all the people in the audience to stop by today uh hopefully catch up with you next week cool thank you